Modern Architecture in Cuba, edited by Stella Coble. This podcast was produced as part of Professor Fernando Lara's seminar on 20th century Latin American architecture at the University of Texas at Austin in the spring of 2020. In this class period, we talked about government projects designed in both Cuba and Mexico during the mid-20th century. But because this class is over two and a half hours long, this podcast will only go into two important projects in Cuba. The first was the Palacio de las Palmas, which was the presidential palace designed for Batista by José Luis Cert. And the second is the Cuban art schools designed by Ricardo Porro. For the first building's discussion, we read Chapter 8 of Timothy Hyde's book, Constitutional Modernism, Architecture and Civil Society in Cuba. And for the second building, we read John Loomis's article, Revolution of Forms, Cuba's Forgotten Art Schools. Both of these projects deal with Cuba's national identity under different regimes and how the country's leaders, as well as architects, wanted to project a new Cuba. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of these projects, we started this class by talking about truth in general, and how everyone struggles with communicating their own ideas and their own version of the truth. Here is Professor Lara arguing about this concept of individual versus national truth. What is this truth? that we are looking for. Uh, is, is there ever the possibility of a universal truth? Hmm. Isn't the universal truth part of the modernity coloniality thing? I mean, and on the other extreme, uh, what about if we all have individual truth? And how do we come together to do anything? Uh, if we all have individual truth. It's a little bit the legend of Babel, right? The, the, the legend of the Tower of Babel is that uh, people try to reach the heavens, reach the sky, and that was a big challenge to God. And the consequence of trying to reach the sky is that people stop communicating with each other. And... Uh, the tower could not be completed because each group of workers were speaking a different language. And that's, I mean, there's lots of interpretations on that legend. Is the, the individualism of, of each individual language, each individual truth, doesn't allow us to cooperate. Uh, and there are also more religious metaphors on that, that I'm, I'm not the best person to, uh, to speak for. Uh, but I, I wanted to start from there because it, it was a big architectural debate on the 1980s, late 70s, 80s, all the way into the early 90s. The, the whole postmodern debate was a debate on that. Uh, the idea that modernism was about this overarching uh, homogeneous narrative and that postmodernism would bring the possibility of a plurality of values, a plurality of truth. Uh, how do you see that? I mean, how do we balance that? Uh, the, you probably, have you ever uh, encountered the work of Jacques Derrida? Uh, he, he's a, he was a French uh, philosopher uh, of the post-structuralism group. Uh, 
Italian took my theory class, so we discussed post-structuralism and semiotics and uh, phenomenology in that, in that class. Uh, and Derrida was very much appropriated by architects in the early 1980s to the late 1980s uh, for that. I mean, Derrida, his main thesis is that communication is fiction, that mm -hmm. what I say is not exactly what you understand, never will be. And for that matter, any hope of a real exchange is impossible because what I can say whatever I want, but what you understand on the other side of the communication is filtered by your experiences, your ideas, your ideology, your desires. So uh, Derrida's main thing is that communication is fiction, it's not real. Nevertheless, we do communicate, and we do cooperate, and we do uh, act together in a number of things. So mm -hmm. what about this big debate? What is, how do you reach truth, and what, what are the, how do you position yourself on that debate of one universal truth versus the Uber individualized <coughs> truth of each person. I I feel like um, as I've gotten older, learning the tricks that people employ to uh, to implement their own truth or to promote project their own truth. Mm -hmm. It's not that I think that they're lying or anything. It's more like, okay, that is one mm -hmm. tool used. Um, and I think of photography, especially mm -hmm. from that uh, article about photography with Baragon mm -hmm. and how, like, as we know now as architects, students, and whatnot, like, the best angle of a building is going to be mm -hmm. this, so it looks really good in the <laughs> photograph, which is great. But once you know that, mm -hmm basically becoming more educated of those things. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, actually visiting the places is always the best. That's the big argument for phenomenology, that you need to be in this space in order to really understand it. <coughs> Anybody else? <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> I think with um, I think truth is everyone has a different like memory, mm -hmm. like basically a memory library of how they take their experiences with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but all of us generally have the semblance of the human framework. Mm -hmm. That's what we find as our universality that we all relate to each other. Anyways, I I wanted to start with this conversation about truth mm -hmm. uh, because Cuba is a great example for us to discuss those different truths. So here we jump into the Palacio de las Palmas. What I was understanding from the reading was this struggle of how do we show Cubanidad through architecture that isn't just reproduction of colonial idioms. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I understood was that they're trying to abstract these typical Cuban thing, so do we still abstract 
um, the places we live in through architecture? Do we still address our location and sense of place in a building? Um, so for example, with the Palacio de las Palmas, it's taking Cuban idioms, such as the royal palm tree, which became an important symbol for Cuba, especially through Jose Mar um, through Marti. Mm -hmm. um, and they abstracted these palm trees and made these amazing, this amazing canopy that was planned. Um, and even used like the typical patio, which would have been part of colonial architecture at the time, but mm -hmm. completely reinterpreted for a different Cuba. So do you guys know who Jose Luis Cert was? Have you encountered Cert? Before. I, I did because um, Seth, um, Seth is one of the founders of the School of Architecture in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. so. oh, wow. cool. Jose Luis Seth was a leader in Spain, uh, and a very important architect in Spain uh, in the 1930s. So uh, he created a modern modernist group in Spain called Catepac. It's, uh, Grupo de Acción de Trabajo de Arquitectura, something, uh, in Barcelona. Uh, but uh, he came to the U.S. Uh, I'm not, I don't know if he was uh, persecuted like Frank Candela was. Candela was older than Sir by a good 10 years. And Candela fought for the Republican side on the Spanish Civil War. And they lost to the, uh, to the Franco uh, fascist side. And Candela was in prison. He was in the prison of war camps in the Pyrenees, in the border of France. And then he managed to come to Mexico. Uh, I don't know if Sert has a refugee story. Uh, but he comes to the US in the 1940s. Uh, he was already part of Siam from the 1930s. He was already a very important member of Siam. And in the US, he associates with Paul Lester Viner. Uh, and Paul Lester Viner was very well connected. Was, uh, his brother was Secretary of State. I mean, Paul Lester Viner was elite of the US East Coast. Uh, and they were very successful, served, continued to be the leader of Siam. Uh, after World War II, they kind of pushed Corbusier out of the leadership of Siam. They thought that Corbusier was holding too much on his hands uh, and was detrimental to the Siam cause. And they wanted to expand Siam. So one of the things that Sert did as president of Siam right after World War II was to invite architects from Mexico, from Brazil, from Venezuela. He, he reached out to them all to join Siam. And Siam had a few meetings. They had a meeting in 49 and a meeting in 51. And then the 10th meeting never happens. That's why we have the Team 10. Mm -hmm. The Team 10 is a team of young architects who were planning the 10th meeting, but never happened. And they <laughs> kept the name of Team 10. Uh, but Seth uh, uh, became the dean of the Harvard GSD in the 1960s. He was very, very important, very, very well connected. And at that moment, 
uh, the U.S. government was promoting modern architecture. Uh, in the 50s, the U.S. government was building modernist buildings, especially in embassies. You mm -hmm. have the New Delhi embassy, you have the Rio embassy, all those embassies, there might be many, many more, are the U.S. government finally uh, opening up to modern architecture. Uh, they didn't in the 1930s and 40s. They didn't with uh, FDR. Mm -hmm. It was only after World War II that the U.S. starts to uh, use modern architecture as an icon of U.S. modernity. Mm -hmm. And CERT capitalized a lot on that. He designed a master plan for Havana. He designed a master plan for... Uh, there's, there's a, there's a uh, factory of uh, truck engines in uh, Rio de Janeiro in the, in the 1940s. That was part of a U.S. agreement, U.S. funded. And uh, this is the governor's palace of uh, Havana, Cuba. That, that he designed uh, in the late 50s, in the mid to late 50s. Uh, so Sert was a big deal. Sert was a major, major architect. Uh, and what do you think of this, his interpretation of Cuba? You have to put the hat of 1955 in order to look at this building. Nowadays, you look at this and you think it's a little too literate. There are so many more sophisticated ways mm -hmm. to relate to Cuba. In 1955, this was pretty much the avant-garde. This was as far as any major architect could go away from the modern orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. right? the, the, in 1955, they were still doing uh, very austere Bauhaus and Corbusian buildings, and, and this was a stretch. He was, he was putting himself uh, on uncomfortable territory by designing this. And it was never built, right? No, it was never built. Uh, Castro kicked the governor out, and with him, our associations to U.S. courts, even Romanesh who was a great architect, decided to leave Cuba in the early 60s. I think this building would have done its intended job because we've got this new dictator who's coming in. It's like, all right, we're going to change, we're going to shake some things up here in Cuba, but I don't want the people to think that I'm changing things too much. <laughs> so how do I make... How do I find a commission that still people can identify with? Oh, the palm tree, the royal palm will have that metaphor very obvious in the canopy. And so it would have been a really good project to say that we're going to be moving on with a new Cuba, but it's we're still we still have our our heritage and our history that that we're forming a new like re rebranding in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, Sert was very avant-garde in this mm -hmm. building. It has lots of echoes of Corbusier and Chandigarh, yeah. mm -hmm. which is about the same time, mm -hmm. like two years earlier only. Uh, and if you can Google, Stefania, mm -hmm. uh, CEPAL, C-E-P-A-L, CEPAL Santiago, Chile. Uh, it's the building 
designed in Chile in the 1960s. And you see how uh, powerful that idea was. We will discuss it more extensively when we talk about the 1960s. But again, it's the, it's the, it's the United Nations headquarters in South America. And it has the patio and the very brutalist aesthetic. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's 10 years younger. It was designed 10 years later. And uh, uh, that, that surf building was very important. Uh, but then, now let's move to a completely different building, which is, are the Escuelas de Arte. Escuelas de Arte Havana, Cuba. Now, look at this. <laughs> yes, it is very, very, very cool. So, uh, Porro, Ricardo Porro was a Cuban architect. Uh, he was persecuted by uh, Fulgencio Batista. He was part of the student movement, very activist. He went to Venezuela and he worked for Villanueva in Venezuela for about 10 years in the, in the 1950s. And when the Cuban Revolution took control in 1959, he went back to Cuba. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was an experienced architect. And he got this commission. Uh, there was a golf course in the outskirts of Havana. And the uh, leadership decided to build uh, art schools in that golf course. It was a great metaphor. You take over the golf course from the elite and you create art uh, schools of ballet, I mean, so classical dance, modern dance, plastic arts, uh, music, those five, I'm forgetting the, the fifth one. Uh, you create those schools uh, for the whole population. And then Oro had this proposal and he won the commission that he would build modern Cuban architecture. So those schools are designed to reflect Cuban Africanidad. Uh, that's the idea. So Cuban is an Afro-Caribbean country, and those schools reflect Africanidad. They also use brick uh, for a country that did not have a steel mill or a cement plant. Uh, the use of brick was the most uh, feasible material. Uh, and those buildings were amazing. They are still amazing. And he invited two Italian architects who had worked with him in Venezuela, uh, Gotardi, and I forgot the name of the other one. And they built those schools. What year was it's this all book? about passive ventilation, 1963, 64. Mm. Kind of reminds me of like Giancarlo Zaccardi a little bit, like yeah. in a weird way. Yeah, uh, the circles, yeah, the, yeah. 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 the idea of the circles. Now, Stefania, please Google Wilfredo Lam. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It will show his paintings. It's so 
this is the most recognized uh, painter of the time in Cuba, 1950s and 60s. And he was also looking for Cubanidad in, in his paintings, this, this Africanidad. Now, Wilfredo Lam, his father was Chinese. His mother was uh, Afro-Cuban. Afro uh, and you can see his paintings that he is searching. I mean, all of them are searching for that expression of Cubanidad. So, Surt and Romanesh from a very uh, white, elitist perspective, are trying to search for Cubanidad. Mm -hmm. Ricardo Porro, from a more uh, low-tech, kind of uh, third world kind of technology, is searching for Cubanidad. Wilfredo Lam is searching for Cubanidad. That was a big deal uh, in that time. The, the Caribbean had several intellectuals in the mid 20th century. Lezama Lima is one. Uh, Fernando Ortiz, Cuban, is another one. Uh, they were all writing about what it is, what it means to be uh, Cuban, Caribbean, what's their identity. Uh, and it's, it's, it's part of a major movement. <coughs> now, the, the sad side of the uh, the de Arte story is that they were not even completed when the Cuban government decided that they should use the Soviet prefabrication model for fast economic construction. And the schools were abandoned as, as some kind of bourgeois utopia. Uh, they really abandoned those schools. They were uh, Two of them were never completed. The other three were completed and used, but it completely fell out of favor with the, with the new Cuban elite of the communist government, now fully communist government. And uh, and they are so difficult to reconcile. Mm -hmm. It's really, really difficult to bring all those different truths anywhere close to each other. Mm -hmm. They're very divergent. Yeah. And very loaded. Go on. <laughs> uh, anything else on Cuba that we should discuss? What I thought was interesting was that the idea of Raza Cosica came up mm -hmm. again. It just had a different branding in yeah. Scumania, but it's like that era. It is. It is the same. Rediscovering what is it to yeah. Latin America. Rediscovering identity, yeah. uh, valuing hybridity and miscegenation. Mm -hmm. I mean, miscegenation was devalued to the point of being either illegal, like in the US, or being a sin in other places, which are all different ways of uh, of disencouraging and, and repressing mm -hmm. any person who has uh, diverse parents. Uh, and yes, in the early 20th century, you have Vasconcelos writing about Raza Cosmica, the Brazilians are writing about the same thing. Uh, the, in, in the Caribbean, it was Fernando Ortiz, Lezano Lima, 
César Anme. César Anme is from the French Martinique. He wrote in French. There, there are many intellectuals writing about that in the, in the Caribbean. I also found it interesting that they were, that in one of the, re the readings they were mentioning um, regionalism mm -hmm. and talking about regionalism, but from the perspective of your, ex from your experience, not like mm -hmm. looking at the climate or the physical environment, but more from the individual. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting to relate it also to the, the building by search with mm -hmm. the palm resemblance mm -hmm. because I feel like the regionalism there was more about trying to bring like to extend your experience of nature to the building mm -hmm. and instead of yeah just like thinking of ways to to shelter the building from the sun from the wind it was more on, on that level mm -hmm. so it's more metaphorical I found that yeah. interesting those architects they are in the circuit they, they they are immersed in the conversations of the uh, intellectuals or the painters. There's a, there's a whole climate, a whole environment where they are immersed. And those things are showing up all the time. What it means to build in Cuba, how to relate to nature, how to relate to, how to do passive uh, climate control, uh, how to be efficient, that all those things are uh, coming together. Mm -hmm. And I also liked when, um, when Sir talked about the superfluous, right? Was it Sir? No, no it's Hyde. Hyde mentioned the superfluous aspect mm -hmm. of the buildings that Sir was in search for. Because, mm -hmm. like, of course, all buildings have to function. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter, right? But then, like, he was trying to get to, to add that to reach more. Layer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How to reach mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. uh, to wrap it up, here's a quick clip of our ending discussions. Each individual architect would have their own agenda, right? I mean, people want to work with wood, people want to work with steel, they want to work with bricks. They have their own agenda, they have their own skills and talents. Uh, the clients also have their own agenda, and that's important to understand. Although only one of the two projects that we discussed was built, I really think it's important that we consider how these designers and leaders were attempting to brand both themselves and their countries during these different political times. I hope you all enjoyed these clips from our class, and thanks so much for tuning in.